morning. We're going to continue with John's Gospel, and I'm going to be reading from 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given from them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become smaller. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Amen. So I'm going to invite Rich to come and speak to us. And before he does, Rich, could you just give a little bit of background information about where you're from and what you do? Thank you. Good morning. So at the moment, I teach maths at Charterhouse. Please don't kick me out at this point. <laughs> I actually taught for a, for a long time at a school over in, um, in Horsham. And, um, and then went to, went to Florida with the family to train for the ministry. Um, and then, uh, for some reason, I'm teaching maths again. God, God in, his, um, in his great wisdom, knows what he's doing. But at this point, I don't. Please do have uh, John chapter 3 open in front of you. That would be really helpful. Um, not least because it means you'll be reading the words of God rather than listening to some guy at the front. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your holy, your inerrant word, that we might um, see you uh, ever more clearly, that we might love you, that we might live in the light of your love for us. And we ask that this morning you would speak loud and clear, and we would be changed by you, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Have you ever had that experience when you go to a party and you've been asked to bring a party trick 
Um, so you rack your brains and you remember this um, not too awful thing you might be able to do. So you practice it a lot, and if you're me, you practice it whilst driving to the party. And you're a bit nervous, but you think it's probably going to be okay. <clears throat> and then the party comes along, and um, the person who's doing their party trick before you is completely fantastic. And um, it's incredible, completely top-notch, and you're sitting there thinking, oh dear, what am I going to do now? Anything I do is going to fade into insignificance. There is no hope. The most glorious thing has already happened. I'm going to be an embarrassment, a disappointment. It's going to be a letdown. Well, as a church, you've walked this far through John's Gospel, I believe. And at the beginning of chapter 3, you have this visit from Nicodemus. And Jesus explains that the only way into the kingdom of God is to be born again. And he says that new birth comes about by believing in, by putting your trust in, by building your life upon, by submitting yourself utterly to the Lord Jesus. And if you turn from your sin and you turn from your rebellion against God and you turn from your failure to live right and you submit to Jesus as king in your life, then from now on you will have eternal life. Remember, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The climax of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus is the glorious whosoever of the gospel. It's the majestic high point, if you like, the pinnacle, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, of course, and the center point of life. The best and most important news of all time. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and you will have eternal life. And then we move into the second half of chapter 3. How can we follow that glorious height? Surely anything now will be a letdown. Not as good, a disappointment. But then we discover what follows is no letdown at all. It's far from a disappointment. Instead, John writes, after this, notice at the beginning, and then pushes us onwards and upwards where we find not different truth, but the same truth expressed even more deeply. More glorious reasons for trusting in the Lord Jesus, as we shall see. So I want to look at these verses in three parts. I guess that's traditional, isn't it? First, the baptisms that are occurring, and then the bridegroom as the origin. And thirdly, the blessing to be obtained. The baptisms, the bridegroom, the blessing. So the baptisms, first of all, from verse 22. Jesus leaves Nicodemus, and he leaves Jerusalem, and he leaves the affairs of the city, and he moves into the Judean countryside. He goes downhill, he goes northwest, up into the Jordan Valley in the direction of the Sea of Galilee, if you can imagine the map in your brain. It's a journey of perhaps 60 to 80 miles from Jerusalem. This is not a one-day trip. He didn't jump in his car, remember? He walks for three, four, five days, with his disciples. And then verse 22, do you notice it says when he got there, with his disciples, he remains with them. Do you, do you see that in the text? He stays with them. In other words, Jesus is spending time here building up some relationships with his disciples, teaching them, training them. There are things to be done, yes, but Jesus loves to spend time with his people. And friends, that hasn't changed. He loves to spend time with you as well. If you belong to Jesus, if you're a Christian, then he absolutely loves you and loves to spend time with you. 
He wants to build that relationship. He wants to teach us and to train us for our role in his kingdom work. In the text today, though, not only did Jesus spend considerable time with his disciples, he's also baptizing. If you flip forward just a moment to chapter 4 and verse 2, you'll discover that it's not Jesus himself doing the baptizing, it's his disciples. But, but John uses the kind of language that we would use when describing somebody in charge. He was baptizing. We, we use it, don't we? Steve Jobs made iPhones. Or Henry Ford made cars, sort of those really old um, illustrations. But we don't actually mean that Steve Jobs sat there making iPhones, do we? We just mean he's, he's the one overseeing it all. And that's the kind of language that uh, John, the author, is using here. <clears throat> and a little distance away from Jesus and his disciples, up at Anan near Salem, also in the Jordan Valley, is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And he's teaching and he's baptizing also, verse 23. And, and Baptist, we Baptists, we love that little phrase, don't we, in, in that verse. Because there was plenty of water there. <laughs> no, no sprinkling for us. No, no, you get the, you get the full works. <laughs> Maybe if your name is John the Baptist, you kind of have to live up to that, right? But note the ominous overtones in verse 24. For John had not yet been put in prison. Do you see that? And when we read this, we might wonder, why in the world does John, the author, include that verse? Because is it not pertinently obvious that he's not in prison, since he is baptizing? I mean, it seems like a statement of the obvious, what is the point, does it not? But I think the answer is a fairly simple one. If we head back to Matthew's Gospel, we find Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness, concludes in Matthew 4, verse 11. And then in Matthew 4, verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, Mark, in fact, does exactly the same thing, from Jesus' temptation to John's arrest in a moment. And Luke, of course, only speaks of John the Baptist in terms of the birth narratives. So if we read only those three Gospels, it would never, we would never realise that Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry overlapped. So we need to know. We need to have it pointed out to us. And John's keen to do that. You might think, why does he do that? Why is it important that we know there's an overlap in this ministry? Well, remember John has already said, John the Baptist has already said, I am not the Messiah. Jesus is the one you must follow. And now in today's text, Jesus' ministry is getting underway. And, and John makes the same point. I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. That's verse 28. And then crucially, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. And we'll return to that verse in the next section. But this is where John's heading. We need to see their ministries overlapped so that we would see that John the Baptist's vital ministry is really all about Jesus and points to him. And that's important because our ministry as Christians is exactly the same. It's not about us. It's that we might point towards him. And then verse 25, there's a discussion arising between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, we don't know who this Jew is, over purification or uh, ritual cleansing, I think is how the NIV puts it. Perhaps baptism more specifically in this case. But notice their discussion here is not about the basis for baptism or the mode of baptism or indeed what baptism achieves. Rather, it's about the baptizers 
the people who are baptizing. In other words, the issue for John the Baptist's disciples is very simple. John the Baptist is really important and he's losing disciples. That's what they're concerned about, verse 26. And notice how they begin their question to John the Baptist with that really interesting word, rabbi. It is, I think, the only instance we have when John the Baptist is referred to as rabbi. I mean, he's not a rabbi, is he? His, his father, of course, was once high priest. So if you like, he grew up in a, in a godly family. He would have known the, the Old Testament pretty well. But he's not a rabbi. And yet, they say, rabbi, teacher. John the Baptist, you're super important. That's what they're saying. And this Jesus, whom you baptized, John, people are going to him. And they're leaving you. Notice their use of hyperbole in verse 26. All are going to him. Clearly that's not true because they're not going to him. But, but, but they're using hyperbole, right? They're saying, look at all these people. They're flocking to you, to, to, to Jesus, and they're, and they're flocking away from you. And, and this is a terrible thing. It's worth noting, this isn't the first time that John the Baptist has lost disciples. It happens back in chapter 1 as well. I don't know if you noticed that as you were going through it. But back in chapter 1, verse 35, we read, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Remember, his role is to point towards Jesus. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Then we read, When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And John was delighted. John knew his role as a forerunner, the one who directs people towards Jesus. His desire is that people would follow him, not follow John. And so, look at verse 27. John responds to their worry that he was losing disciples, not by agreeing that this is quite difficult for my ministry, but rather by teaching that all good gifts come from above. In other words, the only reason I ever had any disciples at all, ever, is because God gave them to me. <laughs> and if he chooses that they move on, then that's, that's great. This is, about, this is about the Lord Jesus. He says, the fruit of my ministry is God's fault, not my fault. I am a servant. I am not the Christ. I was given a job to do by God, yes, but the key to my job is to point people towards the Lord Jesus, a recurring theme. And he repeats it in verse 28. I am not the Christ. So while his disciples have this great worry that he's losing disciples at a rate of knots, John himself has no such worries because it's not about him. So that's the baptisms. Next we consider the bridegroom here in verse 29. And at this point, John the Baptist alludes back to John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana, doesn't he? That's when we last saw this whole bride, bridegroom imagery at that wedding. I was at a wedding in Florida back in December. And uh, I, I, just to be clear, I don't go to Florida very often. That is the first time for a really, really long time. So <laughs> just to be clear about that. But anyway, I was there. And uh, if, if people ask me about the wedding, what do I talk about? Well, I talk about the bride and the bridegroom, of course. But did you notice at the wedding of Cana, there is not even one mention of the bride. And the bridegroom's mentioned just in passing. It's very unusual. And perhaps the reason is that the focus there as in all things, is on the Lord Jesus. The one who is the bridegroom, in fact, as John goes on to say in our text today. In, in fact, John the Baptist has already alluded back to the wedding at Cana in verse 25, when he uses that word for purification or ritual washing. It's only ever used one other time by the author of this gospel, and that's at the wedding of Cana, 
where there are six stone water jars used for what? Ceremonial washing. He's alluding back to that, you see. Those water jars which represented the Jews' attempts to get right with God, to be right before God. I mean, he looked at this a few weeks back, presumably. And yet Jesus turns all of that water, man's attempts to get to God, into wine, symbolizing his blood, which is the only way by which we might be saved. And in abundance to cover all of our sin from beginning to end. John is alluding back to the wedding at Cana. And now in John, uh, John 3.29, John the Baptist turns our eyes fully back to this imagery and he writes this, the bride, namely these people chosen, that God has chosen, belongs to the bridegroom, namely Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom, namely John the Baptist, who was sent ahead of him to prepare the way, waits and listens for him and, far from being upset, is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. You tell me Jesus has come and the people are flocking to him? That's great. He must become greater, I must become less. Do you see the flow of his thoughts? He realises his own ministry is coming to an end. He has done his job of pointing people towards the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So now he proclaims the gospel to those disciples who remain with, them, with him, and he points them to Jesus as well. In other words, he doesn't just say, I don't mind if some of my disciples are going over to Jesus. Rather, he says, yes, they're going to Jesus, and all of you who are still here, you, you should be doing that too. He says in verse 31, I am from the earth and speak as one from the earth, but Jesus is from above. In fact, if you read the verse, you'll notice he says, Jesus is from above at the beginning of the verse, and again at the ending of the same verse, in case you missed it first time around. Jesus is sovereign. He is king. He is over everything. I am not says John the Baptist, so look to him. And the crux, of course, is verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. When I was working for a church, I had that verse stuck above the wall, uh, above my desk on the wall, so that every day I might remember, this is not about me. This is about the Lord Jesus, who we know and love. And he's highlighting the right perspective, not just for those who are in ministry, but for those who are Christians anywhere and everywhere. It is not about me. It is not about you. It is about the Lord Jesus. He must increase. We must decrease. Our role, like John the Baptist, is to point to him because he is central. And then John goes all out. He drives us to see his heavenly perspective. And, and have a look at verses 32 and 33. And, and of course, at first blush, these two verses might seem a little contradictory, might they not? Verse 32, John says, Jesus testifies, that is, speaks about what he has seen and heard in all eternity, but no one receives his testimony. No one. Verse 32. Verse 33, whoever has accepted his testimony has certified that God is truthful. Well, since no one has, achieved his, has received his testimony, verse 33 is irrelevant, right? Do you see what I mean? They kind of seem to be against each other, don't they? But if we think back to the hyperbole that John's disciples have used back in verse 26, all are going to him, by which they mean the vast majority, a lot of people are going to him. John just turns that on his head and says no one receives his testimony. He sees deeper than the crowds who are flocking to Jesus to hear him teach, to be baptized by his disciples. He sees below the surface. 
And using exactly the same hyperbole, he says, well, it may be that all are going to him, but no one is receiving his testimony. And two years later, just over, he's proved right. When these hundreds, these thousands, are shouting crucify, they haven't received his testimony, you see. They're not falling before Jesus in surrender and trust. They're flocking to him, perhaps, but they're not trusting him. And so he says no one receives his testimony. And he says it perhaps with tears in his eyes. Comparatively few, hardly any, really go to him. I wish that they really would. John is saying my worry is not losing people to Jesus. That would be something over which I would rejoice. My worry, my sadness, my grief is that whilst they flock to hear him, none of them truly receive and trust in him. And with a sigh of sadness, he says no one receives his testimony. And then he catches himself and remembers that no one is not strictly accurate. The one who receives his testimony, notice how small that is compared to the everybody, (laughs) sets his seal to this, God is true. I hope for many, I pray for many, but there'll be one or two, just a few, just a remnant who do receive his testimony and as a result exalt God as truthful. Can I just highlight John's point about the truthfulness of God here? Whatever the world says out there, you cannot believe in God without believing in Jesus. All of the Old Testament, of course, points towards the Lord Jesus. And when he came, God attests to him, this is my son whom I love. Do what? Listen to him. That's God's attestation of his son. So if you reject Jesus, you reject God. In fact, you claim that God is a liar. In the Bible, there are two ways to call God a liar, both of them in 1 John. 1 John 1.10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. If you think you have not rebelled against the creator of all things, if you think you're basically okay and a decent person that God should accept, then you're saying God is a liar because he says that we're not. And then in 1 John 5 verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony about his son. And that's what John is talking about here in John chapter 3. If you do trust in Jesus, you affirm that God is a God of truth. And then John concludes the argument with this great Trinitarian assertion. Jesus, whom God has sent speaks God's words, not human words, but heavenly words from his Father, words that are true because God is true. And how does he do that? Because he has the Holy Spirit without measure. And therein lies the final difference between John the Baptist and Jesus, the Son of God. John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit from birth, remember, is far inferior to Jesus, the Son, who has the spirit without measure from eternity past to eternity future. And then he goes further. Not only has God the Father given God the Son, God the Holy Spirit without measure, but also God the Father has given God the Son all things. Remember verse 31, he is above all and over all, he reigns over all things, but now here John tells us not only is Jesus above and over all, he also owns all. All, and that is a greater thing, is it not? The government are over us, but they don't own us. Jesus is over us, and he owns us. 
and that includes us all. We do not own our lives. Jesus does. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus still owns you. You rebel, you ignore, you reject him, you beat him, you crucify him, but that does not change the fact that he owns you. And one day in this life or the next, your knee will bow before him, because one day every knee will bow before him and confess that he is Lord, every knee, yours included. And if you are a Christian, you can rejoice that Jesus owns you. An ownership full of father-hearted tenderness, compassion, discipline, encouragement, love. An ownership that demands things of us and then provides what we need in order to do those things. The Father loves the Son and all things, including you and me, he has given into his hand. So we've looked at the baptisms, we've looked at the bridegroom, and John the Baptist concludes in verse 36 with a brief description of that great blessing. Whoever, the whosoever of the gospel, remember, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Anyone who believes in, who puts their trust in, who builds their life upon, who turns to Jesus alone for salvation, for forgiveness, who has, if you like, all their eggs in the Jesus basket, has eternal life. Notice the tense. Back in verse 16, will have eternal life is the tense. But here at the end of chapter 3, the tense is present. If you trust in Jesus, you have eternal life right now. And it's eternal. That means it goes on forever. You can't do anything about that. Whatever we do, whatever mess we make, however we might fall, we have eternal life. And one day God will call us home. Our eternal life has begun if we belong to him. If we believe in the Son. But notice the contrast to believing as well. The opposite of having faith in Jesus is what? Disobedience. Did you notice that? This point is made time and time and time again through the New Testament. Paul perhaps does it best. Romans 1 verse 5, he describes the Christian faith as the obedience of faith. And then he does exactly the same thing in, in Romans 16 right at the end. Just, just at the beginning and the end, just to make sure you know what the, con- what, what the brackets are around everything here. The obedience of faith. To trust in Jesus is to obey What did Peter say at Pentecost? Repent and be baptised, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, either you obey that or you don't. And, And to trust in Jesus, to believe in him, is obedience, and not to is disobedience. The imperative to believe. And the result of faith is eternal life, and the result of disobedience is very simple in this verse. God's wrath remains... On you. Notice the contrast with earlier on, Jesus remains with his disciples. But for those who disobey, for those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's wrath remains on you. It doesn't say God's wrath will come upon you one day at judgment, although that's true in a fuller sense. He rather says if you do not obey, if you do not believe, then God's wrath remains on you. In other words, God's already angry as we stand against him in this life. And out of the depth of the wrath of God comes the cry, repent, believe in Jesus, he is your only hope.
And if you do, then you have an eternal life which will never perish, spoil or fade, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1. So John the Baptist makes a very clear call to each and every one of us today. Believe in Jesus, he is your only hope, and therein lies eternal life. If you do not believe, God's wrath stands upon you. But if you do, there is a glorious future that awaits. Whatever you may be going through now, the future is glorious. Because God is glorious. And he calls you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That blessing of eternal life that comes if we might believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, always it is the case that as we come to study your word, as we come to consider um, all that you say, we are reminded of our fallenness, of our need yet again to come to you in submission. We're going to do that in a moment again as we come to communion. But we thank you too that you died that we might live. That your blood is sufficient to cover all of our sin. And that if we're trusting in you, then we have eternal life right now. We thank you, we praise you for that, and we ask that you would continue to lead us on the road to heaven. For your glory and for our good. Amen.